Hello and welcome back to season four of the Uncertainties, the podcast for 20-somethings who don't quite have their shit together yet. I cannot believe that we are on our fourth season. To anyone who has listened and supported the podcast, thank you so much. It honestly means a lot to me. And I hope that this season doesn't disappoint because we have some amazing guests lined up. If you are a fan of the episode and you have 30 seconds to spare, it would mean so much to me if you could rate or review wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps new listeners to discover it. So thank you again. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Today's guest is an award-winning writer, activist, TED Talk speaker, cultural commentator, model, and the author of In Their Shoes. Talk about a multi-hyphenate. They have written for The Independent, Gay Times, British GQ, and Cosmopolitan, and were named as one of London's most influential people in the storytelling category. Within their activist work, they have campaigned for non-binary and trans rights within the UK government and appeared on BBC London, Sky News and ITV discussing topical news surrounding the trans and non-binary community in a tireless effort to forward the discourse and championing LGBTQ plus rights. So Jamie Windus, it is a true privilege and pleasure to have you on the podcast today. No, do you know, that made me sound very esteemed. (laughs) And it's, it's just almost like you're about to bring out like Emily Maitlis or something <laughs> like, like <Honey>. Claire Balding. <laughs> um, I did. Do you know what? That is all me. It's a bit weird. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a while ago. Some of that, but I will take it. That was in. That was my real life. Um, <laughs> that was, and to be honest, that was most of my twenties. So yes, that is, that is me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Who the hell is this? Um, no, it's lovely. Thanks for having me. You've had some lovely guests on it, so it's nice to come in and sit down. Oh, thank you. Thanks. And actually, this is really random, but and I don't want to make myself sound ridiculously creepy. We have actually crossed paths before in a very like London way. I saw you um, at the Biffa Awards last December. You yes. Were fabulous as always. I uh, I think at that point was maybe a few glasses of wine deep and I was like I want to say something to Jamie but I also feel like I'm not sober enough to say something so I'm, like, I'm gonna leave it this one time but it was a bit it was a regret the next day I was like damn it I should have just said something <laughs> sure that was do you know that was my first time at uh Biffers and it was hilarious it was quite a rogue invite no offense to Biffa if you're listening I will obviously happily come again <laughs> this year but like I'm it's not my industry um really like I'm you know I, I work in the media but not not in film and tv so it was really uh I was with, I was there with with a good friend and we were like this is hilarious look at all these people and we just got put on a random table with like people and we're like we don't know who these people are because obviously we're British so I'm not going to talk to them it's bad for people like uh you know as someone I would describe myself as kind of a mere mortal in spaces like that because you've got like me mincing around sitting down and like you say everyone's quite drunk so you'll be like oh okay I'm just at this funny event and then bam there's just you know like Riz Ahmed's just kind of mincing through trying to get to the bar and you're like all right hi or like Sonia from EastEnders is just kind of there or (laughs) do you you not tell me that Sonia from EastEnders was actually there because I will die no I mean one can dream 
No, it is so great to have you on the podcast because um, it is centered around uncertainty. And actually, something that I have found since kind of following you and being such a fan of your journey is that through your writing and your book and your fashion, you exude such a real sense of self-confidence and uncertainty that I find just incredible and very remarkable but I do imagine that if we rewind back to you know 13 14 year old Jamie who was growing up and navigating their identity and um a journey of self-discovery that there was a, a level of uncertainty that that you experienced but I do want to talk a little bit about growing up and what that time was like for you because you're you're based in London at the moment aren't you but you grew up in I want to say Dorset is that right Correct, Karis. Yes. So I grew up in I grew up in Dorset and I left Dorset when I was about eighteen. So yeah, spent the whole of my life there. What was growing up like? It was an interesting time. Definitely I like the I like the word uncertain. Um, or looking at this concept of uncertainty because I think it's um it's something that a lot of people, like with confidence, people think you kind of grow out of. Um, and I think definitely I grew into confidence and I grew into certainty. But for me nowadays, I wouldn't say that certain, uh, certainty and confidence are um, cemented into my life. They definitely fluctuate. However, back then, there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, growing up, it was uncertainty about whether or not I knew who I was whether or not I my identity was something that I even understood at that point if I had the language for um so I grew up in quite a traditional space um it was you know council house two parents uh brother and sister and I was quite from an early age quite quite noticeably different um likes interests uh the way that i spoke the things that i was interested in watching like tv for example like big soap fan every year i'd watch the tv soap awards with that uh, bated breath um it was actually you know no offense to the biffers it's my dream to go to the the soap awards the, the, the tv quick soap awards um and yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty. I, I didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy my time at school, my time as a young person, massively. But I think thinking about this question of uncertainty, I don't think at the time actually I knew that I had a fear or I had this kind of like worry of uncertainty about my future because I was just figuring it out. I think at that age naivety almost plays quite a positive role sometimes in being able to figure out things without too much pressure from the world you can be like oh okay i'm still a young person i've not got that many responsibilities i can kind of figure this out um without too much um uncertainty going on obviously that's different for lots of people but for me i was like okay what is my identity who am i am i you know who am i attracted to um and so yes there was uncertainty but it didn't ever feel like terrifying 
Yeah, like this overbearing weight on you. It's interesting you say that, actually, because I was having a conversation with my therapist today about this exact thing of um, of when you're in those like teen years, you're like life is just kind of being thrown at you so quickly. And like even just really banal things of like, what am I going to study for my GCSEs and then my A-levels and stuff? Like you get so bogged down in just like the immediate, the immediacy of now that you're not thinking about necessarily all these other kind of larger issues of personal identity or just anything really that that is at play and it's only really sometimes in retrospect that you're like wow like that was a very kind of crazy and confusing time no I think you're absolutely right that you know you are just bumbling around in teenagehood and hormones and puberty and everything is very much heightened when it comes to like the decisions you're making such as you know GCSEs who am I going to sit next to? Where am I going for lunch? What am I going to do at the weekend? Like those things are the big things of of life at the at that time. But I think for me, I exactly had that with um, sexuality and gender identity. It, for me, it wasn't a big issue. When it became the issue was when people kind of presented it to me as an issue. So when externally other people would kind of present it as something to um, for me to notice or for me to tell them about or for me to answer their questions on or when I was you know bullied about being gay at school or um you know people kind of picked up on these things if I kind of stripped that back and just was if that had never happened I would personally feel like I'd never had a problem like I said discovering that because I was just bumbling along figuring things out on my own terms obviously yes there would have been a bit of fear and trepidation on it but it was actually the external kind of almost intensity and scrutiny on is Jamie gay why is Jamie wearing that why is Jamie wearing makeup like all of these questions that made me then question myself um which subsequently made me more uncertain about whether or not um I was doing the quote unquote right thing mm-hmm. by it, by just finding out who it was. So, you know, I don't blame those people. I don't resent those people that we were all young. We we're children. That's but, the thing, isn't it? It's so difficult because when you're a kid or a teenager, there's just like such a level of everyone's just so judgmental about things. And it's like, it's all about fitting in and being cool and all of, and, and like for you to kind of be, the rust with this like unbearable weight of like responsibility of like who are you like if someone had said that to me at the age of 14 I would have like had a meltdown <laughs> yeah people still um, say it to me now and I'll start crying I'll be like, yeah oh, it's just such a big question like oh my god do I want to have an existential crisis like it's a lot to ask of someone so young so no it's that is that is very tricky um exactly I was just trying to remember my food tech ingredients every week you know I was oh, just trying to like not forget that. <laughs> my PE kit I was just trying to like bumble along people in that space in that small town hadn't seen that before and they didn't know what to do with it and I think now looking back I think people find it quite affronting yeah um, absolutely. They're like, how do you know who you are and they're probably still grappling with with it within themselves yet again like another kind of form of projecting their own insecurities on someone else which is um yeah like just a horrible thing to um experience especially at a really young age um I kind of want to talk continuing on from that about 
fashion and femininity because it sounds like it was something that was a huge influence and uh, a massive help for you in authentically expressing yourself and I know that in your TED talk you um, discuss how exploring femininity in those teen years made you feel like you had superpowers and that you loved the exuberance of fashion so I kind of wanted to ask you like how did the let's call it love story with fashion begin was it watching The Hills or <laughs> Devil Wears Prada or like how where did that love of fashion come from I think a big a, a big player in it was uh, Ugly Betty oh yes amazing reference yeah a huge I think that was a huge reference <laughs> I loved the drama I loved the escapism I loved the fact that it was something I'd never seen before. And I remember always thinking to myself, watching the show, and I know we joked about it, but genuinely watching like the TV Choice Awards or like um, the BAFTAs or seeing people, especially at that time, like women dressing up in like incredible gowns, outfits, and going out to these places and like looking amazing and looking like they are incredibly confident I remember thinking to myself like what is what is it that's stopping me from doing that like Mm -hmm. is there anything that's stopping me from doing that like there isn't because I could you know at the time I was like okay well my version is is wearing a suit and I was like oh I find that a bit boring Mm um it doesn't feel like it has the same like grandeur Mm -hmm. that I would expect from winning best soap at the National Soap Awards. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I don't have to. Like, I, I, it was a series of questions I asked myself. I was like, well, what if you don't want to wear the suit? Okay. Like, what happens then? I was like, well, nothing really happens. You just find something else to wear. And then at that time when I was having these thoughts, a new, like a vintage shop opened in town. It was run by two young two young women in their early 20s. Um, at the time, I was like 15, 16. And I used to go there every day after school and essentially just look at all of the clothes that I'd seen on the telly. Um, you know, gowns, dresses. All, you know, In my town, still to this day, there's just like a new look and a peacocks. So I wasn't able to go in and see huge, like vintage gowns or amazing pieces from decades before and I used to just go there every day after school and just try things on um for hours and then slowly my confidence built and I just started buying things and then wearing them to school um or wearing them at the weekends or just just seeing how it made me feel and that that is what I really try and hold on to now is when I'm shopping or when I'm thinking about fashion is I have to remember that at that time, it was purely for me to answer questions that I had about myself. It was like, what do I, what do I want to do? What do I want to look like? Let's, let's just go and try this. It wasn't for Instagram. It wasn't for, uh, it wasn't to look attractive. It wasn't to fit in. It was purely because I had a question that I wanted answering about myself. Um, Mm -hmm. And it did the job. Yeah, and I can definitely see that. I think fashion does have this uh, capability of like almost being like a like an armor or something. It's like you know you almost can like turn into a different character if you want to, depending on the day, depending on 
what you're wearing, you know, and um, I imagine like at that point, it must be such a fun and like freeing thing to just be like, I'm going to wear this, whatever it is, dress and or like this blazer with power sleeves or whatever it is I'm going to put on today. And it's just going to like bring out that that confidence in you or that side of you or like a character of yourself that you almost wish that you could be, you know? Exactly. And I think a lot of people used to say to me, oh, you're just dressing up and like performing. And I would say to I would kind of I can think back and I think we all do that we, in every single t- interaction, even when you're naked and you have to get something dressed for the postman. Right. <laughs> you are thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to look like? What's he going to think? I need to look up, you know, we all, in, in literally every situation we are putting on clothes that change how we feel but more importantly how we perceive ourselves in the world and how we think other people will perceive us so it's all about perception and for me perception was quite a hard thing to grapple with because I I went from I remember the first time that I bought something from the vintage shop and then I wore it to sixth form so it was my sixth form was like attached to my school there's like the same people and we just moved into a, a different part of the school when we were 16. But the main difference was that we were allowed to wear our own clothes. So there was mm-hmm. no uniform. And I remember being like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. And that was the time when I had gone from exploring who I was with fashion in a really safe and comfortable way, just me and fashion. And then I'd taken it and I had to, I was now wearing it and lots of other people were seeing it that I went to school with. So I still have it now, but there's this one black vintage, like floor length velvet coat that I, I bought and I wore in the sick form. And literally I walked into the common room and just like pure silence, like people were like, what's going on? Um, it was just people, people were shook. Um, and looking back now, I don't really understand because it's, it literally is just a black coat. Um, but that was my first kind of interaction with people not liking it and me then having to grapple with this idea of like, okay, I still want to do this, but I now know the consequences of my actions. As in, not that I've done anything bad, but as in like some people aren't going to like this and they're going to tell you quite directly that they don't like what you're doing um and that's kind of never really gone i've just learned to get better at handling it and i think again we all have that you know we'll all have people that we think we look silly we'll all have people who are like why are you wearing that what are you doing with that you know women have it it's not unique to me at all but it's something that i think we all have to grapple with and we all we all feel the ramifications of you know people's unnecessary uh, or just unsolicited opinion. And yeah, I know that you have spoken a lot about about um, the clothes that you wear and your appearance and how it is so polarising for the public. I do want to talk about one of your biggest fashion icons, uh, Princess Diana. Because <laughs> oh I love the fact that you said it. So she is it. She died on the day that you were born. Is this right? So you think that you're her reincarnation? I love this. <laughs> right. So uh, this is what. Bear with me, because my mum, <laughs> my mum doesn't listen to a lot of stuff that I do. She she does she dips in and out, but she 
one day she happened to listen to me say this, right? She was like, I said, I was, um, I was supposed to be born on, and she, she rang me up that night and was like, why are you lying to the public? <laughs> why is Bareface lying? She was like, because <laughs> I was like, uh, I was like four, four months? No, eight weeks early. Oh, right. okay. So, and she was like, Jamie, you were born in April. She was like, eight weeks after that is June. And I'm like, I literally could feel my whole world crumbling because <laughs> I genuinely had thought that I was supposed to be born as she died. But now I just like to think of, you know, it's 20, I'm, it's the same year. Yeah. You know, it was the same summer. Um, <laughs> she generally is a huge, um, it's bizarre, isn't it? She's a huge inspiration for me. However, I never, I was going to say I never knew her. Like we would we'd go to like <laughs> Soho House together or something cheap. Um, in the night, you know. <laughs> literally, literally, I came out, she departed. Um, but there's something about, which I think a lot of the nation obviously latched onto when, when she was alive, is there something about her tenacity and the fact that she also used fashion in a very clever way and in a very self-expressive way she didn't listen to people telling her she couldn't mm. she had that exactly right what I was just saying she had you know in contrast to me having a common room teller that they don't like my coach she had the whole of the nation bar the world saying that she looked a certain way mm. you know all the time much like you know much like Meghan Markle much like a lot of the well, 100% of women in the spotlight in today's time have people sharing their opinion. There was just something about her that made me feel like she really carried herself with confidence doing it, which I, I love. Still to this day, she is uh, she is an inspiration, I think, for many. You know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you talk about expressing herself through fashion, I mean, the revenge dress, iconic um and yeah there is something really emboldening about it as well um what so many iconic outfits from her but are there what would you say are some of the top ones that you rank I mean even just like the the oversized jumper with cycling shorts for me really it hits it hits it's you know it's irreverent people coming back now doing it thinking that they did it first oh no um were you running out of oh no oh no <laughs> no like you're just going to prep you're not running away from the world's media um you don't understand the nuance of this those cycling no. shorts she was in a rush she had nothing else to put on <laughs> um definitely that definitely the wedding dress um of course yeah my favorite thing about the wedding dress is that it was just like that 80s like purposely wrinkled like there's no need for steaming uh, back in the day. <laughs> you um you actually did also mention that uh, there was a time before lockdown, just maybe just before lockdown, where you were actually having to change parts of your physical or external uh, appearance. Sorry, because you felt like you couldn't handle the level of street harassment that you were receiving. How did you navigate that time? Because you've spoken so much about how important fashion is in your life and then for the, for that to kind of be almost taken away from you or that such a big part of your personality to have to mm. look at I guess how how was that for you that was a really interesting time and I think 
the pandemic, the, the timing of the pandemic also I found really interesting mm. because, yeah, so I'd gone, it was like November, November 2019. So it was kind of period around the time I did my TED talk, which was heavily about um, street harassment and, and exactly what we're talking about here, this kind of change from joy to fear when it came to exploration of um how i how i wanted to look essentially and i kind of got to a point where i was like i can't i couldn't do it anymore in terms of like the constant um like an example is that like i couldn't i, I really struggled with public transport because i'd get on the i get on the tube um and it would just be like constant staring or constant looking and i think Things like that, people were very quick to gaslight me in that space and be like, well, you look really different, so people are going to look at you, which obviously I understand. But that doesn't mean, you know, people can say a million things to you about why it's happening. It doesn't mean that it's not going to still impact you. Yeah, um, of course, yeah. And so I, almost as like a slight social experiment, the three months I was just like, I'm just going to wear no makeup, I'm going to wear... Um, like traditionally masculine clothing and I'm just going to see what happens and I noticed that there was a stark decrease in any harassment or any kind of commentary on what I looked like but I felt really sad mm. because I'd because of the fact that this wasn't something that I had chosen to do it was something that I was doing because of other people and then lockdown came and for me, that was a chance to actually think, why do I do what I do in terms of how I present myself to the world? You know, how much of it actually still is for me and how much of it is because, you know, at the time my career was, was going quite well, I'd become quite known for how I'd looked. You know, I was shaved head, um, quite avant-garde makeup. I had... Uh, I was I was known for that, and then I got locked in, in lockdown. I was like, well, something that started out as me doing this to find out who I was has has been successful. You know, I've got to this point that I know who I am, but also I'm doing it now for other people more than I'm doing it for myself. Mm. I don't mean like strangers, but I mean like work or because I thought that that's what I had to do. Um, or because I thought that if I looked any other way, people wouldn't accept me. When I noticed that there was that shift into, actually, I was now doing it for the validate, like more so for validation than the personal gratification. I, I, um, I started from scratch. Yeah. And that was hard, but it it was, um, it was very important for me to do because I couldn't survive going how I was, how I was before people were, um, people are cruel, you know? Yeah. No, totally. And it's almost one of those things where it's like, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, if you continued being a version of yourself that maybe your online community had seen, and then you're no longer that it's like, they're wondering like, where's Jamie, where's our Jamie gone or whatever. And then, yeah, I mean, I'm. I just imagine that's uh, that's really difficult and like massive. Kind of hats off to you for, yeah, just like 
being so intuitive and um listening to what you want to do with you know and how you want to express yourself um I want to talk a little bit about writing um because you obviously have written this incredible book called In Their Shoes um and before that point you've been writing some column pieces you are the editor and founder of the award-winning magazine Fruitcake which explores authenticity through creativity for the LGBTQ plus community through its biannual publication um so you wrote this book over the course of um, 2019 and uh, you said that you didn't want it to be too heavy, I guess, I'm using it in inverted commas, but it's a mild memoir that is a reflection of your experience um, and a multidimensional insight into the life as a non-binary person. Um, and while you were in an interview promoting it, I thought a quote that was really nice was when you said, I also wanted to portray the mundane normalcy of my life. You know, I can also be boring. And I really mm. like that sentiment because I think it just, um, it might sound really basic and you know, on the face of it. But I just like that idea that, um, you know, being trans or non-binary doesn't make a person less capable or deserving of just pure, simple joy, um, which is why I really love that that quote. How did the opportunity of writing this book come about? It kind of felt quite pinched to me at the time, but I'd always been a writer. So actually kind of to continue the, the narrative, when I we used to go into this vintage shop, they asked me to start writing for their blog. Um, and start kind of taking pictures of myself or taking pictures of the shop and writing about fashion. And that was my first kind of beginning of of writing. I then, um, this was in the era of like, when blogs became like really sexy. So I was like, had my own blog and I was just writing about um, nonsense, essentially kind of like a publicized diary, which is essentially now what Instagram is. And um, from then I went to university, studied fashion business. And then like you very kindly mentioned I started um fruitcake magazine in my final year so they basically said to me um to all of us in our final year you can create any business you like and the the summer previous I'd done my internship uh time with Stonewall and so I'd kind of got fully immersed in this kind of quite busy activist focus like campaigning focused mindset and I decided to 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 do the magazine as, as a project. I didn't know whether or not I was going to continue it from that moment. This feels, this feels really weird to say, but like from that, because when I say it like that, I'm like, I'd hardly done anything at that point. And I don't know why they reached out, but I, I basically, basically was asked whether or not it, it by my publishers, if it had been anything I'd ever think about doing, writing a book. Uh, I said, you know, absolutely. And they essentially came to me with an idea. And I said, I don't like that. Can we do this? Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I think that's another thing. I think people think when you write a book or when you are in the process of writing a book, you know what you're doing. I would, you know, obviously people who've written lots of books might know what they're doing, but I still think there's an element to, to an author's process where they start and they're like, I have no idea what I'm going to do here. Um, and yes, I wrote the book. Um, I had a year to write it. Um, unfortunately, it came out in lockdown, um, but it still had a good run. Uh, and exactly like you said, it's really hard in the climate. You know, we're still in this climate now, but 
in terms of like transness in the media. But at the mm. time I was, it was really heavy, like really, really heavy with transphobia. Um, and it still is, but I wanted to be able to show lightness. Um, and it's a really hard thing. You know, like we're saying before, it's a really hard thing when you, f- I felt pressure to create this kind of multifaceted piece of work that showed the highs, the lows, the brilliance, like it encompassed everyone and I was like, that's not what I've been asked to do here. Like, I can create a book that is inclusive of everyone, of course, but I've actually specifically been asked to write about my experience. And so that's what I'm going to do. Um, and the second I took that pressure off myself, it became easier to write. And it was really hard, but I'm very happy that I did it. And, you know, I still messages kind of all the time of people saying that it's helped them in some way whether it be I get a lot of messages from parents who have read it and have been like this is how to understand my child and that that's you know not to sound like a pride of Britain but that is a <laughs> that's worth it you know that's that's that yeah, yeah I'm happy that that's happened you know if no one else messaged me ever again I'm glad that someone has read it and it helps them understand something a bit more um Yes, lots of hilarious reviews. I was about um, to say because you and um, I'm really happy actually that you uh, that you acknowledge this about yourself. Like there's such a lightness that you have to what can be really incredibly like hard and difficult topics to talk about. And I think that's a, a reason that your community have kind of fallen in love with you. Like when you did the the um, inspirational quotes, is so good. It's you know what? It's exactly that, and it's it's awful because I'm. You know, because I'm a narcissist, I whenever I go on Amazon, right, if I'm on my phone or my laptop and I type in like A for Amazon, the first like link that comes up is obviously a link to my book because I'm always searching it. And it's really hard to to like not look at the reviews. Mm. But some of them are just so brilliant. Um it's like brilliant as in like this book's amazing, but also brilliant as in like my favorite ones are people, you know, it's, it, it is a memoir. Uh, it's not like a full, it's not like a, an autobiography, but like it's, it's based on my life. So it's obviously going to be about me and people were, were commenting like, God, me, 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 me. And it's like, well, I'm not going to write about your life. Am I Ian? Like, I don't know what's happened in your life. I'm going to write about mine because I've been paid to do so. <laughs> um, uh, and so, yeah, it's, I like to see it now as like a timestamp of where I was when I was uh, in my early 20s. You know, my life's very different now. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily have as much to say about myself now because I've already said it. Um, and so when it comes to writing now, I love storytelling and allowing other people to tell their stories like via me so um like in in summer 2020 i was asked to join the editorial team at gay times as contributing editor and so that was an amazing and i'm still you know i'm still there now and that was an amazing job opportunity to essentially have this platform to specifically include more trans voices um and non-binary voices in that space 
Yeah, you kind of touched on this with that, but writing a memoir can obviously force a person to have these major moments of reflection on their own life. I was wondering what are the either weirdest or most profound parts looking back on your life from the perspective of, like you were 22 when you wrote that book, right? So on the perspective of 22-year-old Jamie. I think at the time I I, I really couldn't see the future Um not in like a sad in like a dark way but like in uh i didn't know what the future was this was like my first big opportunity and i was like i didn't know what to do with it and i didn't know where it would take me i didn't know i didn't even you know i hadn't set out to be in this industry um for very long or like i hadn't had nothing was clear cut and then suddenly i'm writing a book and that's an amazing privilege and an incredible position to be in and I was completely shocked and writing it was incredibly hard it forced me to confront a lot of situations with my family um it it forced me to to be honest with people uh in my family and with my friends that I'd not spoken to them about before certain topics because I knew that I wanted to write about them and so I had to bring them up with people otherwise they would read it and be like, what's this? Which I did, I'll be honest, I did, there are some things that I did not tell people and they were quite shocked by. Mm. Um, uh, I think it's, like I say, I like to think of it as like a timestamp. Like there's lots of things in there that I agree with now, lots of things that I've written in there that I disagree with now. That's just the, the, the purpose of growing as a person you know and a book is a very rigid timestamp, and I'm grateful that I can look back on that in 20 years and think that's what you were doing then look at you now you're winning best newcomer at the tv quick awards <laughs> yeah I really like that this book to some people and particularly the younger generation was there something for you that you had that had you know cultural impact whether or not that's film you know ugly betty uh fashion literature was there something that you had that was really informative for you growing up that that really helped you mm. it might sound a bit rogue but i think the first time especially with like a book that i remember reading like a queer story and it feeling identifiable um and also just relatable was I <laughs> don't know I'm laughing was I was asked to uh in English we were asked to like we'll bring in a book that meant something to us and I, it was got Kwan's autobiography yeah I mean he's an Ike like imagining 12 year old me it's like carrying that into school um but that was I, I don't know why I always distinctly remember that reading that and understanding understanding what he was talking about um and then in terms of cultural references that i was able to really relate to when i was a little bit older um and i still again can't believe i didn't mention this um when i said about the tv shows that i've watched repeatedly is glee now glee is a bit of a marmite tv show but it it, is. i still to this day will listen to it on repeat in my car listen to glee and i remember it's the first time i'd seen not just not just like queer representation, but like the realities of the fact that 
queer people are bullied and like mm. people, like this is what happens when uh to young queer people and I remember being like that's what's happening to me and I didn't I, at the time I wasn't I didn't tell anyone what was happening you didn't tell uh yeah anyone what was going on and so to see it and then to see it resolved and to see people like supporting young queer people um filled a very important space in my life at that age I did want to talk about your TED talk because you have you've briefly briefly touched on it already um so you actually I thought you did it at the beginning of 2020 but you actually did it at the end of 2019 is that right so November yes so how did that also come about was that almost a byproduct of writing a, a book and people being like oh you should also kind of do a TED talk that's speaking about this or was it completely separate and again an, another thing where you thought I really want to do a TED talk because it's like an amazing thing to do and mm. My second question off the back of that is how terrifying is it to like memorize a speech and then perform it in front of a gigantic audience? They won't mind me saying this because I'm still very... You I work still a very, lot with TEDx London, don't you? I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm still very firmly much um, touched with a part of their cohort. And um, that's an amazing thing about, about TEDx London and the team is that you know, they don't just kind of bring you in and then you do your talk and you leave. You know, there's always room for you to come back and and help out um, in some capacity. the The process is really unique. It's it's unlike anything I've ever done before. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is you kind of it's done through referrals. <laughs> That's the only oh. way I can put it. So like, you can't ask to do one. That's you have to wait to wait to be chosen which i did feel very <laughs> you are the chosen one that's that's pretty cool it was yeah so it's it's kind of it's like um like sexy word of mouth so it's like the people from the year before so like after i'd done mine um when they were then gearing up for the next one they would ask I don't know if I'm giving out all the trade secrets, but like, no, I love ask, it. Tell me all. <laughs> the like previous speakers, who would you recommend? Oh, um, okay. Like, who do you know or who do you think could do? And that was it. So I remember one day in the summer of 2019, I was just working on my laptop in a coffee shop in, uh, in Soho and I got an email from from them kind of being like we'd love to chat like can we come in can we come and chat and I said if, if you like it was quite they were very insistent on meeting like meeting me oh okay and I was like okay I remember one day like it was like eight o'clock in the evening and I was meeting this woman who I didn't know really really know what she was about and she just it felt very 90s she was like sat down opposite me and she was like would you like to do a TED talk this like in December? Like we'd we want you to do one. And I was like, if you want. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Wait, sure. so hold on. Uh before that point you had no idea that that's what she was gonna ask you. And then I knew that long... she was from I knew that she was from TED. Right. I didn't I didn't really know what she wanted. What her intentions were. No. And then and how long was it in between her asking you and you doing it? So it 
around three three to four months okay okay so it, it was a very intensive training process um, and one of the best things i've ever done in terms of like honing skills you write your script you you kind of go through your script with the team you meet up and finalize your script and then you they teach you how to memorize and then in which is was really hard and for me it, it was a process of taking my whole script and putting it in one of those apps that just reads it aloud to you and so i spent like two months six weeks ish kind of almost trying to remember it like you would a song mm. and so i would just play it in my headphones all day um and then just before from the few weeks before you kind of have like choreography almost where you get told like when to walk or when you should move or when what you should do with your hands um and it's so well organized it's all run by volunteers so like that's why I love it is because it's all they're all there because they want to see everyone deliver their talks like they mm-hmm. they have such a passion it was ridiculous I still I still genuinely have quite a lot of imposter syndrome about it because I'm like why the hell did you ask me it definitely has changed my life and if you watch it if anyone's listening and wants to watch it wants to have a good laugh like within the first couple of minutes like I just break down crying and they cut they cut it um, so they took most of it out, but there's like a big, awful. Like, I have actually watched it. Yeah. So is that was that a bit longer? Because I was about to say I thought you kept your composure so well. It was. It was. Yeah. Behind the scenes tea. So I cried, turned around. The director of Ted Merriam came on, gave me a hug. Oh. Was like, you got this. Got this. But the whole time the audience are like applauding. So it's making it's me cry even more. more. I know, I hate that, yeah. I've got like a Britney mic on, so all they can hear is me like, <laughs> like just like weeping. Oh, stop it. And then they cut it back in and I spin around and I like make a joke. And then somehow I I don't miss a beat. I know, it's, on. it's amazing. But it's honestly... It's amazing to see. It's amazing to work with them still and and help other people do their so like the year after um in lockdown I hosted co-hosted the event. Yeah, I watched that and it was so good. And I've had uh, Sophie Williams who was on that year, she was on the podcast, yeah. Yes, and like to sit in so that year I sat in all of the rehearsals, like in the weeks leading, in the months leading up to it, listening to everyone's talks. And it was amazing to be able to, like, give that back in a way, but also just listen to other people's talks, like listen mm. how much brilliance everyone has to say. Um, and so, yeah, they are genuinely life-changing. I think a lot of the, a lot of the platforms and spaces that I've been able to move into since have been because of that um I'll never forget and I was like what 12 years old when I did it so I don't I I think I'm just incredibly grateful for that um and I hope people take away take take something from it yeah even if it's a laugh 
definitely not I do I did want to talk about it because in in your TED talk you discuss the urgency of supporting the trans community and you share some really shocking statistics I think the one that really stood out to me and I hope that I don't completely butcher this is that out of 10 million points of discussion online 1.5 million of those comments are transphobic which means that 1,369 transphobic comments uh, thoughts and reactions are shared digitally every single day since 2016 I mean that is just a wild statistic and I think the thing that it really started to make me think about is I wanted to kind of discuss online spaces because in so many ways you've spoken about um, you know an online space that has really helped you in your journey I think um even the term non-binary and and finding that community was through Twitter, I believe. And so it can be this place where you can connect with really like-minded people and and create your own community and uh, somewhere where you can educate and exist very freely. But then the internet, as we all know, can be this real cesspool for like bigoted and hateful discussion. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on on that and how you approach discussing really nuanced topics online mm. it's a really tough one my relationship with the online space uh online spaces has definitely changed in the past two years mm. um because like you say having a, trying to have a nuanced conversation online is really difficult so hard. um and the second you then you then say that you're like oh it's really hard to have a nuanced conversation online people are like no it's not and it's like well it actually really is because there's just so much that can be lost from you reading flat dialogue on a mm. screen, unless it's like overtly offensive. Um, it's just, it's not, it's not the forum to have necessarily, I don't think to have informative or educational conversations. I think it can spark conversations and that's okay. But I think looking back and thinking about, you know, like you said, the discussions that are coming from the media or um, another kind of piece from the TED Talk, and that is still very much relevant today, is the fact that, you know, the Telegraph newspaper, um, as an example, like, and now more so, let's say, like the Times like a trans I think it's on average a transphobic article at least every day um and things like that therefore skew the balance between being being able to have a nuanced conversation online because you'll have some of the biggest players in the media industry you know the Rupert Murdoch's the Piers Morgan's the people who have an incredible amount of um, volume to their voice saying one thing about trans people and then when you have a trans person coming up and saying oh no actually um, that's not right like there's an imbalance there and people aren't necessarily going to listen to the person that they don't identify with they're going to listen to the person who has the loudest voice and you know at time of record Emily Emily Wakeless has come out today and said that the Tory party have a huge influence like there's a you know a senior a senior in the Tory party who has a huge influence as a senior at the BBC and that is something that is skewing all of the news programming and it's like well yeah this is the country we live in mm -hmm. um where 
our news isn't just it isn't always impartial. Um, so yeah, that's why I stick to his standards because <laughs> that is. No, that's why I just want to hear Sonia, you know? Yeah. But I think you're so right. And I think it's so, I just don't know how people like that genuinely live with themselves to put someone, to make someone that vulnerable who, Mm. and, and to, yeah. And so exposed to exactly as you say, just to be like punched down and yeah, it's just, it's, it's immoral to be honest. And yeah, it's, it's wild that um they're even allowed to do that from any kind of perspective um but it happens just quickly on that as well just i guess to be a bit more expansive like it's not just trans people it's kind of any ideology that they perceive to be slightly left-wing so mm. you know whether it be climate change you know they have if you think about good morning britain like when um, they have any kind of climate change activists on. There's always someone on there who will, or the presenters even, that will kind of shout them down, or race, or disability, or at the moment, you know, with cost of living, you have like people saying, oh, you know, you could lose use less this, or why don't you eat this? Or, you know, there's always, for some reason they think balance is, um, in, this, in the sake of balance, they see balance as like smearing, or they mm-hmm. see balance as like, don't know, uh, we have to have the complete polar opposite extremes of opinion, and that is balance. It's like, well, you're not going to solve anything by having two people that completely disagree on the telly because the audience are then just going to not know what to think either. No, I totally agree. I think another thing that you said in your talk that, um, again, really resonated, well, yeah, resonated, but also thing was really um, emotionally affecting is when you said, you know, I don't want this to be my job. Trans and gender non-conforming people shouldn't exist only to be mouthpieces for our own oppression. I just wondered how much you feel that burden in your daily life and and how you protect yourself mentally, because, of course, like, it's incredible work that you're doing, but it, it must really take its toll. Mm, I think that's absolutely, absolutely, I hear you on that, and it's 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 another kind of example of the ridiculous way that people see marginalized people you know they 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 take so it's very much a take situation like, mm. like i want to understand so therefore i have to take from you rather than um just learn and being respectful i think for me one of the ways in which i have changed that is in, you know, after 2020, it was quite a tough year for me. And I made a kind of a personal vow to myself that I don't need to do this work if I don't want to. Like, there might be pressure, there might, you know, people might pigeonhole you, it might be a hard fight, but you, I was like, I don't need to do, <clears throat> I'm not getting emotional, I've just, just, drank, <laughs> just, just drank some tea. Um, <clears throat> I so I don't need to do that if I don't want to. Um, and so that's why I kind of branching out a, a bit more into, you know, the social media world, um, content creation, that type of space. See what my voice is in a different platform. You know, see see what other muscles I can flex. Um, and so doing that was really fun. I enjoyed it. It's 
it's um and i'm sure people won't mind me saying and no one will be offended but like it's my stupid side it's my silly side like it's the place where i can be silly because i've not been able to be silly for quite a long time or i didn't feel like i could um and the exact same with you know, the hosting and, and broadcasting and and presenting like doing stuff like that is really fun for me because i can still show my personality i still get to do things that i enjoy i still get to use fashion in ways that i enjoy but i don't have to necessarily bring that with a busload of like personal trauma i can mm. um i can allow other people to share their stories it, you know, not to be but in like an arrogant sense, but like in an informed way, because I know what it's like to be asked essentially quite personal questions in an exposing environment. So I feel like I have quite a good grasp on being able to get people to open up if they need to or if they want to um, in a way that's still comfortable rather than like extract, trying to extract things from them. Mm. Um so yeah, I, I I try not to feel that I don't have that pressure as much anymore because I know it's not my responsibility and that there are other things that I enjoy. Um, and one of those things at the moment is comedy. I'm really, I'm starting starting to enjoy kind of spreading my comedic uh, roots, as it were, in 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 new industries and starting out and seeing what happens there. And that for me is really fun because. Like I said, when I wrote the book, I had no idea where it was going to take me. For so long, it took me into a place that was very serious. And now I'm ready for it to take me into places that are more joyful. Oh, that's so nice. That's really good to hear. More so me acknowledging that I can be multifaceted rather than waiting for everyone else to tell me that I can be. It's like me understanding that, yeah, if I want to do that, I can give it a good go. I don't have to wait for permission. Mm, to mm-hmm. be told that I can do it because I probably will never get it so yeah it's a Absolutely. nice nice nugget to end on I like that I like that a lot there's two very 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 quick questions that I ask all of my guests before we wrap up the first oh, yes, thing, of course. what is the thing that you feel the most uncertain about right this second like literally in this moment right now it's a good one I'm going out for dinner tonight and I hope that they have the fish pie on the specials menu. Okay, yes. Love That's it. a favourite. That's nice. That sounds lovely. I hope that for you too. And what is the thing that you feel the most certain about right now? The thing that I'm most certain about right now is that neighbours will return someday <laughs> in my future because when it ended, that was a sad day for us all. It was. Um, and I'm certain that it will return with me in it. That's what I can say. That would be incredible. Heard it here first, guys. Amazing. <laughs> That's a great way to end the podcast, Jamie. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. You've been really generous with your time as well. I really massively appreciate it. And just for sharing everything. Um, it's been so amazing and incredibly special. And yeah, I said it in the introduction, but I do feel very, very honoured to um, to have you on this podcast. So thank you. You've been wonderful. Time. You've been incredibly informed researched thorough i it's very did a very good job so thank you for that my pleasure and yeah hopefully i mean we are both londoners so i i mean if we don't see each other before the biffers then yeah. i guess i'll see you there <laughs> i'll see you there my love <laughs> <laughs>